Is that all right? Excellent. So, always uh, challenging when we start a new series. Mostly challenging for me. <laughs> Bible, that'd be good. So we're going to be doing uh, 1 Corinthians. And uh, to my knowledge, we have never done 1 Corinthians in all my years here. So it seemed uh, that maybe we should. By the way, if anyone wants to buy a new clicker, this one's <laughs> just falling apart at the moment. Um, so why are we doing 1 Corinthians? Let me, let me read you the introduction that um, Craig Blomberg wrote to his commentary on 1 Corinthians. Are you ready? You want to fasten your seatbelts for this? Okay. Imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant morality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal. Still, other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. As if, as if all this were not enough, alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but all, not always in constructive fashion. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. You looking forward to this? It is some church meeting, yeah. I read, I read the slightly watered-down version of that in 9.15. So why are we doing this? Is this what I think about all of you? <laughs> or myself? <laughs> well, well, it's not, is it? But, um, but we can become complacent, can't we? We can become complacent in the fact that things seem to be okay. We can um, be confident in our own seeming success whatever that actually means. There is, of course, a spiritual battle that we are in and is often expressed through these kind of issues. They are reflective of our human frailty. And I've just been sitting there um, the last few minutes thinking about the last couple of days and thinking how completely dense I am. You'll be encouraged to know that. How many things have come across my path in the last 48 hours that have made me feel cross and um, disunited, divided from somebody else? And that's exactly what I'm talking about this morning. Lots and lots of things, all small things. I'm sure, for example, the words of that song that we learned last week were not all over the screen last week. So why were they all over the screen this week? And poor Esther sat up there thinking, oh, everyone's going to think that I'm silly. We don't, Esther. Why has that happened this morning? There's been a catalogue of things like that over the last 48 hours because we're in a spiritual battle where stuff comes in to make us fractious with each other, divided from each other. And all these kind of things that we see in 1 Corinthians are expressions of our human frailty and the way that Satan comes in to destroy, because that's his aim, to destroy his church, to divide us, to make us weak, immoral, whatever, not effective. And that's what happens. So we need, in the words of a good scout, to be prepared, don't we? 
to be prepared, to take a preventative approach because prevention is better than cure, isn't it? Wherever we can prevent something, and Kirsty sent me a whole bunch of statistics and I've left them on my computer. Wherever we can prevent something, where we can do something to stop something occurring in the first instant, then it's much better than having to deal with it once it's got a hold of us. Our awareness of the kind of things that come in to destroy the church, the safeguards that we put up, all help us. But this is not going to be, I hope, a really negative next end weeks and through till the summer holidays. Because our aim here is to focus on what healthy church life looks like. So by seeing some of the negatives, to focus on the positives and say, what does a healthy church look like? So let's talk a little bit about uh, the introduction, if you like, to 1 Corinthians. Paul arrived in Corinth about AD 50. It says that he arrived with much fear and trembling. This was a massive cosmopolitan city. It's not surprising that he felt fear and trembling, but he was confident in the power of the gospel. In Acts chapter 18, it records the story of Paul's stay in Corinth. He was there about 18 months He arrived feeling weak and worn out. And then he came across Priscilla and Aquila, who welcomed him, who encouraged him, who got him to stay in their home, who were with him in this sharing of the gospel. And then Silas and Timothy brought a team along to support him. And suddenly there was a bunch of them here proclaiming the gospel. And as Paul does in many places, he begins in the synagogue. And the synagogue leader, Crispus, comes to Christ. And then there's a change of synagogue leader to this guy, Sosthenes. There's lots of lispy things in this sermon, I'll just warn you. And he becomes a follower of Jesus. And then they're not allowed to meet in the synagogue anymore, and they have to move next door. It's convenient, isn't it? They move next door to the house of Gaius Crispus, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. And the church grows, and they disciple many new believers But after about 18 months, Paul leaves to move on to take the gospel other places. At the same time, Priscilla and Aquila leave. Paul loves this church and he cares for it. Now, bear with me, will you? 1 Corinthians is actually not 1 Corinthians, it's 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians isn't actually 2 Corinthians. It may be 3, but it also may be 4, because there's a visit in between. Paul has a number of... um, correspondences with this church and visits to and from this church that are recorded and we don't have them. It's really frustrating because some of the things Paul's responding to come in a letter that we don't have. It always makes it more of a mystery, doesn't it? But he loves this church and he writes this letter to them on the back of some information he has heard about AD 54. So only a few years have passed since the birth of the church. So that's Paul's story. Corinth. Corinth, I chose the most clear map I could find. Corinth is in the middle there. It stands on the narrow isthmus only four miles across, linking the southern part of Greece with the rest of the country and the northern countries. It's a prosperous centre of trade and commerce. It was preferable for the sailors to use the seaports that flanked Corinth rather than go all the way around the south, which was a journey of some extra 200 miles. 
the bigger ships unloaded their cargo. The cargo was carried the four miles and then reloaded onto other large ships for the rest of the journey. Those in smaller ships, the smaller ships were put on rollers and rolled across the four miles of that little isthmus, I hate that word, uh, to the other side. And then they carried on their journey. As a result, it became a very wealthy city of great military importance. The Isthmian Games, which were second only in importance to the Olympic Games, were held in Corinth every year. The history was that in 146 BC, Corinth was leveled to the ground. And then at a later date, Julius Caesar, who knew a good thing when he saw one, refounded Corinth on that same site as a Roman colony, uh, a Roman city in 46 BC. And it grew in prosperity and its cosmopolitan character. It had really a Roman identity in a Greek nation. So it had already lots of tensions there in terms of its identity. Jews gathered there, ex-soldiers and sailors, philosophers from around the empire, merchants coming and living there on the seaport. Around a quarter of a million people lived in the city of Corinth when Paul turned up. Okay, you got all that? Good. You need that. <laughs> so a question, an important question. What were the major forces at work in Corinth at the time of Paul and his letters to them? Well, there were many, but I'm just going to pick up on two that will be continued to be talked about through the rest of this series. The first one is intellectualism. It was a really exciting place to be, as most cosmopolitan cities are. It was a stimulating place to be. It was full of people promoting all sorts of doctrines and ideas based on the golden age of the great philosophers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. They gathered together in the marketplace and they debated their ideas endlessly. These people were lovers of wisdom. And wisdom is a key theme that comes up time and again through the letter of Corinthians. The second key force was this, sensualism. Now the Greek word Corinthiazine, or zane, came to mean someone who lived a life of debauchery. It's good, isn't it, when the name of your town means something really positive like that? It's a little bit like we may say, hopefully not too often, oh, they're a bit of a Philistine. It's that, that kind of thing. I couldn't think of anything much more good than that. It became a term to mean someone who lived a life of debauchery. That says something, doesn't it, about the character of the city, the Acrocorinth was a hill of around 2,000 feet and it dominated the city. On top of that stood a large temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. There were around 1,000 priestesses of the temple who were sacred prostitutes. They came down to the city every evening to ply their trade. Somebody from the 915, who shall remain nameless, said... They must have been very fit. <laughs> she said fit. <laughs> this cult was dedicated to the glorification of sex. And that is a major force within Corinth and within this letter. 
Also in the city was the temple of Apollo, the god of music, song, poetry, and the ideal of male beauty. And there were many nude statues and paintings around the city, and it also became the center of homosexual practice as well. So these are two key forces, intellectualism and sensualism, that dominate the culture of the city that Paul is in and that he is writing to. That's the backdrop for much of the things that, uh, that Paul writes about in this letter. So a question for us. These are take-home questions, some of these. How has the culture influenced the church? So let me be clear. Culture is the way that things are where we are. Okay, that's what culture is. I mean, we can define it in all sorts of posh ways, but really it's the way that things are where we are. So we have a culture here. Our culture, outside of the church, influences the church. Of course it does, because we are in the culture and in the church. They are not two completely separate entities. The issue is, can we see how the culture has influenced the church? And that's a really difficult question. Because we can never stand completely outside of it in order to know how it's influencing inside of it. Does that make sense? Please nod. I think you're not there anymore. The issue is, more importantly, can we see how cultural thinking, attitudes and behaviours that are not consistent with the gospel, the kingdom have pervaded our church community. By our church community, I mean me and you. Because the church community is not everyone else apart from me, it is me and you. Can we see how our culture is influencing the way that we think, our attitudes, the way that we behave? And it's a really challenging and difficult question. They had to watch out for intellectualism and the passage that Mick will be looking at next week and the one that Phil looks at the week after will touch significantly on how intellectualism, the concept of wisdom, has influenced the church counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sensualism, sexual morality or maybe immorality, there are a couple of chapters focusing on that and how that has influenced the church in Corinth and how they are seeking to deal with that within the church. Cliques and gossiping, that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today, but it shows itself on other occasions through the church. So what is the calling of the church within the culture? What is our calling? These are fundamental questions, aren't they? Are we called to be a parallel reality? Or an alternative reality? Or a better reality? Actually, we're called to be a kingdom reality, aren't we? Not a church culture, where my church culture is like this and yours is like that and down in London they're like that and across in Sydney, Australia, they're like something else. But a kingdom culture, a culture that reflects the kingdom of God, of hope, of genuine community, of good news, of grace. Those are some of the things of the kingdom, aren't they? that we want to see in our church culture, in our 
world culture, but distinctive in a good way. And sometimes Christians have been distinctive in a bad way. (laughs) Distinctive in a good way from that culture as we represent Jesus Christ where we are. What does a healthy church look like? What does a healthy church look like? It's somewhat the opposite of much of 1 Corinthians. (laughs) But it's not good enough to say, well, it's not this and that and the other, is it? What does a healthy church look like? Well, I think Paul helps us a little bit, but you can go away and discuss it as well. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians, because there is much to concern Paul within this letter, but he starts off really positively in 1 Corinthians and the first few verses because he sees the church through the lens of the cross of Jesus. You know, that is really, really important. This is the bride of Christ that we're talking about here. And we can look at it and we can criticize and comment and tear down and tear apart and stand apart from and look at the church and say, well, it's not this and it's not that and it's not the other. And I'm not necessarily talking about our church, but the church. And Paul, he has to address things, but he stands back and he looks at the church through the lens of the cross of Jesus. He mentions Jesus eight times in nine verses. Jesus is his central concern. Jesus is at the center of his understanding of the world. Most of the Corinthians were Gentiles, pagans, believing in a multitude of gods and goddesses. These people have called on the name of Jesus. He is their saviour, their hope. God has set them aside for his own purposes. He says that they have been sanctified and called to be holy. Well, frankly, it doesn't look like that through the rest of Corinthians. But through Jesus, we are holy. Through him, we are called to be saints, sanctified, set apart. We have our hope from the grace of God that's not earned but given to us. They are equipped with all they need from God's spirit and he will complete his purposes in them. So let's remember whatever else we read about this poor church and you'll meet some of them one day, that in Christ they are everything that they need to be, as are we. So learning to spot the signs of disease early because prevention is better than cure. I wonder how many of you recently have um, woken up to the dawn chorus. Some of you? Yeah, well, we sleep in the attic, so the the birds are closer. (laughs) And the dawn chorus is louder. It's kind of nice in its own way, isn't it? Except that it's often not nice because it's too early. But apart from that birds sing, quite a lot of what it means is This is my bit of the garden, and don't you come here. This is my tree, and don't you land on it. I'm making my nest in this hedge here, and don't you come and join me. A lot of it is is territorial, isn't it? Territorial claims, staking out their precarious identity in a potentially dangerous world. And messages came from Corinth to Paul to tell him about this young Christian community. And there is plenty of squeaking and whistling, chirping going on in this Christian community. 
and they're staking their claims and they're measuring out their territory and they're saying, you don't belong here. You belong over there. Don't come here, I don't want you. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, watch out for quarrels, for factions, for the word which we develop into our word schism, for divisions, for disunity. Watch out for these things. Watch out. When you see the cracks start to develop, watch out. Pay attention. Work out what it means to agree and to build unity. The Corinthian church is ripping itself apart. The believers disagree on various issues and they've sorted themselves out into at least four different schools of thought, each of them rallying around a different Christian leader. You know, so often what happens within the church and has happened throughout the ages is that a leader has become popular and then doctrinal divisions have kind of associated with the leader. But often it's about personality, primarily. And it's something within us that, in our human frailty, sinfulness even, divides up, doesn't it? And the church is all about unity. felt really struck by what... Um, Eddie Lyle said the other week when uh, he said, we, we have a tendency to talk about the persecuted church as if somehow they're separate from the other church. So t- there is only one church, the persecuted church. Some people are more persecuted in it than others, but there's only one church. We have a tendency, don't we, to go into little groupings. But there were four particular ones that Paul refers to here. Were they rivals or were they imaginary rivals? First of all, there's Paul. Paul is an apostle from Tarsus. He's the first to preach at Corinth. He lives there for 18 months. His message is simple and powerful. He is someone to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. Paul represents for this church the good old days, doesn't he? He represents its foundation, how it was in the beginning, and how it was in the beginning should, of course, be how it is forever, right? Paul is significant. Of course he is. He is the founder of the church. He was the one that brought the gospel to them. Of course he is. We follow Paul. We are going to be like him, with him. It's going to be like this forever. The second one was Apollos. Apollos was a missionary. He was a teacher. He came from Alexandria in Egypt. Now that's a bit more exciting, isn't it, than Tarsus in Spain. Alexandria, key city. He was eloquent. He was persuasive. He was great at apologetics. He was an Old Testament expert. He came there. He strengthened the church. He especially worked with the young believers, building them up in their faith. He was an impressive man. Do you remember our force of wisdom, intellectualism? Apollos fitted that really well. He built around him potentially an intellectual elite. He was an impressive speaker. It's very easy to follow those who are impressive, isn't it? I have my favorites. I'm sure that you do too. It's really easy for someone speaking to be what is impressive about them. And for a certain type of grouping to form around those. Have you read their book? Have you read their new book? Have you listened to their new talk on the internet? Have you got their podcasts? 
Don't get me wrong, there's much to be learned from other people. But if it separates us up into groupings and polarizes us from each other, that cannot ever be right. The third one was Cephas, or Peter, an apostle from Galilee, a disciple of Jesus, a leader of the Jewish church, first among the apostles, actually knew Jesus, lived with him for three years. The public face of the early church. You know, we know that in Corinth there was a move of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some said, well, we're not sure about this. We'd like to go back to our roots, to our Jewish roots, to a certain amount of legalism. And sometimes even amazing moves of the Holy Spirit get tied up in legalism after a period of time. Maybe Peter represents those people. And then, of course, well, there's Christ. It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Why is he thrown in there? Uh, son of God, Lord of all, head of the church, center of Paul's gospel, foundation of the church. I mean, I could say a few other things, couldn't I? See, this lot are interesting. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I'm with Peter. I follow Christ. Because that sounds so much better, doesn't it? Maybe these are those who hold lightly to human leadership who are perhaps a little anti-authoritarian. Maybe they represent those who um, are a little bit super spiritual because Gnosticism was creeping in all over the place. The kind of secret keys to the spiritual life. Those who make others feel spiritually inadequate. Over the years... Some of those are those who've hived off to form other churches because the one that they're in is never quite good enough. The thing is that these guys were not rivals. Only their followers were. Peter, Paul and Apollos were all on the same mission. To make disciples of Jesus Christ, the church was never supposed to behave that way. One of the things that's grown up in um, the Bethel Church in the US, which we don't say much about here, we sing a few of their songs, <laughs> is uh, something around a culture of honour. It's not very British, is it? We're not great at doing that. We prefer a culture of dishonour. You get on a pedestal, you get knocked off it as soon as possible. <laughs> it's, not, it's not very British. But you know, there's something incredibly powerful about what they have brought to the Christian church, which is around honouring each other, respecting each other, encouraging each other. We could do with a little bit more of that, actually, couldn't we, in the church in the UK? Of course we're not all perfect. Of course we don't get everything right. Of course we're not all quite exactly the same as each other that's different isn't it than honoring someone as a servant of Christ for what they bring and give to the community of Christ in service Paul says that he appeals for unity he appeals for harmony not unison if that's right he says was Christ fragmented we have a bit of Christ in the Apollos camp and a bit in the Cephas camp 
Well, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? He's making a joke. Of course he isn't. Can't have a bit of Jesus. You either have all of him or none. We are one body. So did any of us die on a cross to save you? No. Only Jesus. He is our Lord. Maybe there was an issue around baptism, and I love this bit of Paul where he says, I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. And then he goes, oh, oh yeah, there was that other family. That's what I feel like all the time. <laughs> it's kind of human, isn't it? It's not about, you know, those people are servants, aren't they? The person who leads you to Christ, the person who baptizes you, the person who disciples you as a new Christian, the person who's the leader of your church at any given time, just servants. Servants of Christ, of his mission and his kingdom. And the reason that I threw in chapter 3 as well with this is basically it's the same topic. Couldn't face doing it again. (laughs) But he goes into chapter 3 and he says, I can't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ." He says, you're just still acting as babies. You're still being toddlers. Will you just stop throwing your toys out the pram, please? Will you stop grabbing hold of things? That's mine. I want it. I got it first. It's not so long since most of us have been there watching that behavior and probably participating in it (laughs) in our homes, is it? He says, will you, will you stop being so immature? Will you grow up? Immaturity, we see it in ourselves, don't we? Let's not pretend we don't. In our petty jealousies and our squabbling and our thinking someone else is more valued than we are. We see it, don't we? Don't we? We see it in in the instinct in our heart to get hard done by when something happens that that frustrates us. We get jealous of stuff and we let it grow up within us. We get resentful. We, We allow us to be divided from other people and we don't resolve things and that's for another day. Paul says, will you... Will you please try and have a more mature perspective? Because spiritual maturity is what gives us a perspective on God's work, that it's all for him. Whether it's divisions between, apparent divisions between people, or other groups in the church, or activities within the church, Actually, this that Paul's talking around is the attitude of the people, not of the leaders, it was of the people. Can be the leaders. And he gives two pictures which are really powerful, I think. The first one is around planting and watering. He says, Does it matter who sows? And does it matter who waters? Because in the end, God gives the growth. 
It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which bit you do, providing you do the bit that God calls you to do. And you do it well, and you do it for his glory. Because in the end, God is the one that gives the growth. We can only serve. We can only give our best. Use the gifts that God gave us in the first place. And then he looks, I think, probably at the buildings around him and says, somebody lays the foundations, but then other people design the plans and other people build the walls. But the foundation that we're all built on is Jesus. I wonder if there's an oblique reference there to Peter. Peter the rock, on this rock I'll build my church. Maybe that's where that group have snuck in. Actually, it's the foundation of Jesus that we build on. It says, let everyone be careful how they build. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Our purpose is the kingdom of God. Everything on anything that endures is what is built by God's grace and for his glory. We may build all sorts of other stuff. We may do all sorts of other things. It says on the day of judgment that they will be like chaff, burned up, of no consequence. Because only those things that are done in the cause of Christ for his kingdom. I don't just mean the church, by the way. Please don't hear that. The things that we do honoring him in our lives are the things that will last. So, church, we need to have that mature attitude, don't we? And that requires us to be honest with ourselves, actually, doesn't it? Honest with ourselves. Honest about the things that creep in to our hearts and grow if we don't do something with them fairly speedily. It means that we need to celebrate what each other brings. So I just love Catherine's piano playing. I, I sometimes wish we didn't do any singing when you're playing, Catherine. I just, I just wish you played the piano. Because it, it, honestly, you bring something that's really beautiful when you play the piano. Something, something deeper, something of God. It's great, thank you. I love the fact that Mick goes and, and visits many of our elderly people that don't get out to church very regularly because he's great at it. I know that because he comes back and tells me stories about their lives that I've never heard and I've talked to them quite a lot. So I know he's great at it. It's, it's fab, isn't it? I love the fact that Andy comes and plays on the drums and has done almost every single week since the day he walked into this building. Because actually that kind of faithfulness, even if it's a bit loud some weeks, is much appreciated. I actually love the fact that there's some of you that just smile at me more than others of you because that just makes me feel better. <laughs> and you have no idea that that's what you bring. 
We were celebrating David Torres at the church meeting and uh, it was minuted that I'd thank David for his loveliness. Well, there's worse things, aren't there, to be celebrated than just being lovely. I love the fact that some of you go to work every day in quite challenging situations and are utterly committed to being Jesus as much as you possibly can be where you are a witness for him in some really tough and challenging situations where there aren't many other people like you where you are. Because that's kingdom. I love the fact that when Ruth Halbert speaks, the whole world lights up. (laughs) You know, I, I mean, I could literally go through you row by row and you probably would quite like it if I did. But, you know, we've got to celebrate, haven't we, what each other brings. It's so easy to pull down We need to celebrate and build up. And that way, there's no room for jealousy. Because you know the strengths and you know the weaknesses and you walk together. And there's no room for divisiveness. And too many good, great churches have been undermined by division and quarreling and schism. Big schisms in the whole centuries of the church and littler ones. And it takes years and years and years to put those things back together again, if ever. This is about the unity that we have for the sake of the gospel. For the gospel. It's why, whilst we don't meet all in the same building, we talk to the other ministers in town. We eat with them. We pray with them. We seek to support each other as much as we can do at least by the way we speak about each other and look after each other, if it can't work into anything else, that is really positive that there's a one church. And then that spreads out from there, doesn't it? What this world doesn't need is churches fighting each other, especially in the press. (laughs) One church, one gospel, one kingdom. It's really exciting, that. It's really exciting how God is bringing people together with that. I'm going completely off piece now. I shall shut up. <laughs> Let, let's, let's work towards this, shall we? Let's, let's see it when it creeps in. Let's deal with it. Let's not wait for it to take a hold so we need IV antibiotics to make a difference. Let's deal with things, early doors, and let's keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Paul says in Colossians. Amen.